one of the things that was very interesting to hear in Albania over the course of the 90s was that we had gone through a communism that was really different from Yugoslav communism and was much more isolated and in some ways more restrictive. And many Albanians who had part of their nation in Yugoslavia in the form of Kosovo thought that, you know, it was much better to be in Kosovo than to be in Albania because of the degree of censorship and oppression. And yet, after in 1990, Yugoslavia went through war and the breakup of Yugoslavia came with a massive human cost. And I remember hearing these arguments in Albania about how, you know, it wanted to be Yugoslavia for all these years. But then in 1990, you suddenly didn't want to be Yugoslavia anymore because you saw what the breakup was and brought for people there. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Like many of you, I have been filled with deep admiration at the courage and the bravery of the Ukrainian people over the last week. Anybody who claimed that Ukraine is not a real nation, anybody who claimed that Ukrainians don't care about self-determination, that they don't want to be able to be masters of their own fate, has been proven deeply wrong by the inspiring solidarity, the inspiring resistance that we've seen throughout the country over these terrible days of war. At the same time, I have also felt deep admiration for segments of the Russian population. In the last week, we have seen thousands upon thousands of people being arrested for protesting the war. We have seen courageous petitions against the war from scientists to musicians to scholars of William Shakespeare. A petition on moveon.org has over a million signatories. And unlike in a free country where signing an open letter can sometimes feel ritualistic and pointless, it takes very real courage to put your name to a letter when that can have bad consequences for your career or even land you in jail. All of this should drive home an obvious point, which is that we are in a deep and important conflict with the Kremlin, with Vladimir Putin, but we are not at war with the Russian people. I am heartened by the sanctions that democracies have imposed on Russia in the last days. If we are to stop Putin's assault on Ukraine, if we are to weaken his regime, if we are to deter military adventurism by other dictators who are closely watching the unfolding events, it is very important that the shocking assault on Ukraine exacts a steep price. Sadly, many innocent people will suffer as a side effect of these sanctions. But since they are necessary to stand up for these absolutely core principles, that is unavoidable. What this does not justify is forms of collective punishment or bigotry against the Russian people. In the last days, an American congressman called for all Russian students to be expelled from American universities. An academic journal 
in the United Kingdom cancelled a special issue on 19th and 20th century Russian religious philosophy for fear that it might somehow help Putin. An Italian university even cancelled and then reinstated a course on the fiction of Fyodor Dostoevsky. All of this is morally wrong and deeply counterproductive. Let us seize the wealth of Vladimir Putin. Let's go after the ill-begotten gains, the yachts and the fancy houses and apartments of Russian oligarchs who owe wealth to their connections to the Kremlin. Let us bankrupt Gazprom and other state-owned Russian companies. But let us also demonstrate that we don't have a quarrel with ordinary Russians and we want nothing more than to return to a world in which we have and share a deep friendship with the Russian people. My guest today is Leah Uppi. Leah is a professor of political theory at London School of Economics and the author of a really interesting book, part memoir, part history, part philosophy, called Free, a Child and a Country at the End of History. We recorded this conversation before the current terrible war in Ukraine. And in many ways, it is about a completely different set of topics. But there is a kind of resonance because the story that Leah tells is about the promise of freedom at the end of the terrible communist regimes which ruled Central and Eastern Europe from Moscow to Tirana. We have slightly different interpretations of why that promise of freedom went sour in important respects. And much of this conversation is a kind of debate about how to read some of the shortcomings of countries like Albania after 1989. None of it speaks directly to what's going on in Ukraine today, but I do think it provides interesting historical background for the great hopes we had for freedom in the post-communist world in 1990-1991, and some of the complicated reasons why those hopes ended up being dashed. Leah Uppi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you're a distinguished political theorist, and I want to talk a little bit about your academic work in this conversation as well, but you've just written a memoir about growing up in Albania at the end of communism. What was your childhood like, and how do you think that should inform how we think about the world today? Yeah, so when I grew up in Albania in the 80s, the country was very isolated. It was nominally a communist country or rather a socialist country that aspired to be a communist country. And there was an important distinction between those two in the terminology. And by the time in which I was growing up, it had fallen out with almost all other socialist countries in the world, as well as all other capitalist countries in the world. So it accused the United States and Britain of being imperialist, but it also accused the Soviet Union, China, Yugoslavia of being revisionist. And so the claim that it made was that this was one of the last purest socialist countries in the world, which had a mission to carry forward, which was to realize global socialism. 
And so it was very isolated. It produced everything inside. There was a very high degree of censorship and of suppression of dissent. Very closed society. People couldn't travel. It was really dangerous to travel. And children were heavily indoctrinated. And part of the story in my book is about growing up in this very isolated, heavily indoctrinated society in which you grow up believing the ideological categories that you're offered by the state and by various educational institutions. I feel like there was different stages in the development of communist regimes. And early on, there was a lot of true believers in the general population. And later on, it feels like, you know, for most of the adult population, they had realized that the ideology is sort of a bunch of lies. But presumably as a kid, you're somewhere in between. So was there a sense, even when you were little, that the stuff you were being taught didn't add up to reality and that the adults around you no longer believed it? Or were you sort of a full believer at the age of seven or eight because you were too young to see those contradictions? Yeah, so I was personally a full believer and I was a committed socialist and I became a pioneer eventually and I was committed to the socialist cause and aware of the sacrifices that we were told the country needed to make for the sake of the ideals and willing to make those sacrifices. But there were nevertheless glimpses in my childhood in which I doubted my parents' commitment. And part of it had to do with just the general context in which most people were actually alienated by the system and dissatisfied. But part of it had to do with the fact that I grew up in a very special family in the sense that this was a family of political dissidents on one side and former property owners on the other. So it was a family of what was called a class enemy, basically. And so my parents had most of the time lied to protect me and didn't tell me about what they thought and who they were and what kind of background they had. But there were glimpses throughout the years in which I was growing up of something being weird and strange about my family and about my parents. So one of them was that uh, my grandmother, who came from this elite family of high officials in the Ottoman Empire, spoke French to me. And I didn't know why she spoke French until things changed. And she revealed that the reason she was speaking French to me was that she had this kind of upper class identity that was carried through this language that was not actually the language of her family. She wasn't French, she'd never been to France and so on, but still somehow shaped her own identity and she wanted to transfer this. Or another example was when um, Albanian dictator Enver Hoxha died. And I remember being really upset and seeing the funeral on television and seeing lots of people crying and these scenes of wailing women and pulling their hair and soldiers in tears and so on. So the whole, it seemed like a whole mass grief of the whole population. And yet my parents seemed indifferent. They were talking about the funeral music and making comments about who the composer of the music was. And so these were things that were very early memories. I was about five and a half at the time in which Hoja died. And this was one of my first political memories in which the first thing that occurred to me was how can it be that I am so upset but my parents don't seem so upset about this complete loss for our nation and the death of this founding father of Albanian socialism. That's very interesting. My parents grew up in a communist country in Poland. Their parents actually were true communist believers and they had been in prison for being communist activists in the 20s and 30s and they were part of a regime at that point. But one of my mother's earliest memories, and she must have been exactly the same age at that time, which is, I believe she must have been five or six, was the death of Stalin and her coming home from school deeply upset by this news and her father telling her, you know, 
you shouldn't shed a single tear for that swine. And he was actually a communist, but it's a similar disjuncture. It's interesting. Yeah, exactly. And depending on what age you were, I think if I had been a bit older, my parents might have been more willing to share their secrets. But because you have such a young child, you don't want to break it too early because child can then become a liability and they become really dangerous for them if you're in this very censored environment. So they weren't sharing this kind of feeling. They weren't saying, oh, you shouldn't be sad, but they were definitely not showing any kind of disappointment themselves or sadness or sense of tragedy, which I felt they should as good comrades in this socialist state. So I think there were these moments of not full awareness, but just doubt and mystery and wondering about whether everything was as it looked. And so this basically went on until the moment of the regime's collapse when you were still relatively young. So what was that moment like when this sort of obsolete political regime whose claims were you know, no longer believed by the population that had grown oppressive in these ways collapsed and presumably there was an intense promise of a better future to come. What was that like for the country and what was that like for you at the time? So it was very strange for me because it was this moment of almost like a trauma because of this identity break in the sense that you grow up believing in the system and you grow up as a kind of committed young socialist and you think that your future is going to look like a certain way and will be embedded in the future of this socialist country. And then that country is just from one day to the other, it's just not there anymore. But on top of that, this, in my case, was exacerbated by the fact that my family revealed the political identities that they had concealed throughout my life. And so that was a moment of sort of the veil of ignorance being lifted in a way and people explaining that, you know, the reason we had these conversations in the family uh, they used cold language to talk about the system and to talk about what happened to relatives uh, in the regime. And suddenly they kind of broke the code and explained it to me. And at the beginning, it was really confusing because it's very hard. One set of categories is taken away from you and then you're offered another, a new set of categories that you've never thought about or you never identified with. And that initial moment was one, not just of kind of confusion and fear, but also really just not trusting my parents and the adults around me in the sense of, you know, how can I know that they've lied to me for all this time? Oh, that's very interesting because you think of a totalitarian regime as imposing lies on its population and then there's sort of various places of resistance against that where to some extent within the family you can be honest in a way you can't be in the public sphere. But what you're describing here is that obviously because of the need to conceal the true opinions, the true identities from you when you were very little. For you, the experience was not at first the revelation that the politicians and the teachers had lied to you, but that actually your family had concealed all of these things to you, so they were liars. So it's a very odd way in which, from a child's perspective, sort of the enforced lying of your own family becomes more salient in this moment of rupture. And that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's because as a child, you're always shaped by different sites of influence. So you have the education through the system, through the school system, or, you know, the environment, your friends, the families of your friends, and so on, on the one hand, and then your own family on the other. And often these things, you know, when you live in one system your entire life, these two things often go hand in hand. I mean, of course, your parents have political disagreements, and there's criticism of society and so on. But in this case, there was on the surface this complete identification with society and disagreement wasn't voiced openly. 
And as a child, you also don't have your own political opinions in a way because you don't care about politics. You don't think about politics. You only think about, is it safe to be on the streets or am I going to be attacked by dogs or are there going to be drunken people where I go to the beach or, you know, this very kind of day-to-day questions that aren't on the surface connected to the political system. And so for me, it was very weird because there were these two conflicting sources of authority that were clashing against each other. And eventually I realized very soon that this was generalizable to the whole state and that there was a problem. And in fact, I think the moment where I became convinced of my parents' narrative is when I saw the secretary of the Politburo come out on television and say, political pluralism is not going to be punishable anymore. And, you know, this is now going to be a country that is run by liberal democratic principles and won't be just one party, there'll be multiple parties and so on. And that was a point at which you realize that, okay, the system is really changing because those who are responsible for upholding it are giving you a message of fundamental rupture and change. And there must have been a problem if that is the case. And that's then a gradual process of revelation. How old were you at that point? And what were the first years after the collapse of the previous regime like in Albania? I was 11 when things changed. And I think the first months were months of great hope. And the first years were, I think, years of progressive disappointment. At the beginning, there was this sense of freedom that had finally arrived and that opportunities that hadn't been available for almost 50 years, for half a century, which is a good chunk of Albanian history because Albania only became independent in 1912. There was this sense that finally you are in a political system that can realize everything that you wanted to, everything that my parents' generation had wanted to. But that was coupled with the sacrifices that were required by the reforms that came to Albania and that needed to be made to turn the country from a very isolated society into an open, functioning, liberal democracy with capitalist markets and so on. So there was a set of political reforms and economic reforms that needed to be undertaken, which came with a cost that was acknowledged by everyone, but thought to be worth bearing in the name of realizing these liberal freedoms. And you now see that period somewhat critically. What were the choices that Albania, as well as some other post-communist countries, made? And what, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think might have been a better course of action? So I think there's two questions connected. The one is, what opportunities were there at the time? And the second one is, what can we learn from the opportunities that weren't, but that would make us reflect about the future in a different way? And I think at the time, it didn't look like there were many alternatives, especially not in a country like Albania, where there hadn't been a dissident movement, perhaps like in other countries of Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Hungary, there was already a movement of civil society that was rebelling against the government. And there were claims that these movements were making that were developed in a certain way, whereas in Albania, Almost everything came from the outside. And the thing that I have become most critical of is this, what was called shock therapy. This idea that you need very quick, drastic interventions in the political and in the economic system in order to turn political institutions around and just change them fundamentally, which effectively meant, for example, in the case of economic reforms, opening up to liberal markets and this very quick succession of changes to state enterprises, which needed to be privatized in order to liberalize the economic sector, which had a huge cost in terms of unemployment and also in terms of social sacrifices that then people had to make to keep up with these market reforms, 
which then also was connected to a very heavy wave of emigration from Albania. And in fact, you know, there's a brain drain that is still a problem for these economies and for these societies, which haven't quite found their path in the transition. So I think what I became most critical of eventually is something like the coupling of political reform with economic reform of a certain kind, which was perhaps blind to the social cost of the economic reforms and which ended up asking for people to make these costs with the idea that they would deliver. And so that, you know, if you did these interventions very quickly, markets would respond and eventually things would pick up, the economy would pick up, and then the promise would be realized for everyone. And that, I think, is what didn't quite work. Tell us a little bit about how that didn't work. I want to understand better the set of choices that was available then and what the consequences of it are. But I think, first of all, we need to understand the prima facie case for why this was a bad idea. And so for people who don't know the history of Albania so well, the history of other parts of the post-communist world so well, what were the real costs that people bore after this moment of shock therapy? And this is an argument that I understand is very life today in Albania, but when people think about the last 30 or so years of history in Poland and Hungary and in Ukraine and many other parts of the post-communist world, the basic structure of the argument, it seems to me, is very similar. I think maybe there's two kinds of things that one could focus about. One is sort of ideological. What is it that you need to take on ideologically? What do you need to believe to think that these reforms are going to deliver in a certain way? And I think it was a replacement of the collapse of collective responsibility, which was a discourse under socialism, with and collective solidarity as well, to some extent, even though that delivered not for everyone, but at least in the discourse, it was there. Two, just the emergence of the individual and taking responsibility for the individual and this idea that, you know, individuals are responsible for their choices, which was very much part of the Thatcher-Reagan era, also in the West, actually. And I think it arrived in the East because it had been the dominant discourse in the West. And I think with that, the idea that if there are things that don't work, if there's failures of either the market or in this case, kind of state enterprises and so on, Individuals who have to bear the cost are kind of responsible for the cost that they have to bear and also have to find their ways of doing things, which I think on a very basic level translated to people just really doing whatever they could to keep up and to survive. And in terms of what happened socially on the ground, as I say, the first thing that happened immediately was this wave of emigration. Now, that was partly the result of this country being locked for 50 years under communism and you know people not being allowed to travel. And the extreme disparity of living standards. I think Albania at that time had a living standard of something like $500 a year per capita. And a close by country like Italy had something that was probably, what, 25, 30 fold. So there must have been something about just the basic disparity of the opportunities at home in other countries that produced that. Yeah, exactly. So obviously that's one thing that happens is that you have a country that has developed in the last 50 years with this idea of the West as the place where all the dreams are realized and it's just not working here. And so people, the first thing they do when they can leave is to leave, when they can leave without a cost, basically, because under communism, they couldn't leave and it was really harshly punished, the emigration. So one part of the problem was this kind of big wave of emigration, which meant also loss of human capital and of collapse of the states on all these fronts where you need human capital to sustain institutions and to make sure that they work. The second one was, I think, with the waves of 
privatization of state enterprises and you know closing down of factories and privatizing and so on in an environment where people actually don't know a lot about how privatization work and what it means to take responsibility and how markets actually effectively function because they just haven't been trained to think about a free market society and to think about the economy in a certain way. So they come from having this completely closed economy, central planning and all that, from that to the exact opposite with not much in between. And I think that transition, which happened very abruptly with the idea that people will learn these concepts and they will internalize this ideology and then it will somehow work, it will deliver on the ground, was actually exactly what didn't work and which led to huge costs and to also people making investments that were fraudulent. In 95, Albanians began to invest all their money in these financial companies that took the form of pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, where you would be promised a very high return for investments. And they put all their savings in these financial companies because they had been told that capitalism is basically you save money and then you invest it in a clever way and then it delivers for you. And there's these institutions that kind of look after your money and so on, which at some abstract level is true. But obviously, you have to have some knowledge also of how markets work and how these things and what kind of guarantees you need and what kind of insurances and so on. So the sense of lack of social security, which was in part the result, I think, of the collapse of these previous socialist structures, which led people to make these investments in this very cowboy way, and which then completely backfired because these companies completely failed to eventually deliver. They came to the top of the pyramid and were insolvent. And two thirds of people had invested there and lost their savings. Some people had sold their houses to have money to actually save in these companies. And this led to a complete um, collapse of the state, whereby, you know, people got really angry with the government because they were expecting their money back after having failed in these investments and started looting weapons. And in 97, which is where my book ends, this really was like a collapse of the state in the sense that it wasn't just that the markets were failing, but also the political authorities and the state's capacity to even ensure its basic function, which is to have monopoly over the use of force was not there anymore because everybody had weapons and everybody was shooting and it was just dangerous to even be outside because you might get killed by a blind Kalashnikov bullet. And this is the period in which I was growing up. So explain that part of the story to me, because there's a general criticism of something like shock therapy again in other countries. And I think that if you want to tell the story of a place like Poland, you would say that shock therapy came with genuine dislocation and suffering. There was probably a drop of living standards for a couple of years. There was certainly a lot of individuals who used to have positions of responsibility, which came with social prestige and some amount of certainly material stability, if not necessarily affluence, who lost those jobs and who went through personally painful caesura. And then slowly the economy grew. Today, a country like Poland is much more affluent than it was in the past. It looked as though democratic institutions had stabilized. Obviously, now democracy in countries like Poland is really under attack, and we can ask questions about how connected or disconnected that is to that original moment of shock therapy. There's different, very different ways of reading that. But what these other countries that also experienced shock therapy did not go through is this moment you're talking about where suddenly everybody has a Kalashnikov and the weapons were looted and so on. So explain to us sort of what's similar in the experience of these different countries and what it is specifically in Albania that led to that collapse of state authority, because that seems to me like an experience that is not shared by other countries that adopted shock therapy. So it can't be entirely explained by shock therapy if you've gotten very different results in other countries that went through the same part of that history. 
Yeah, I think the main difference is the fact that there wasn't, as I mentioned earlier, a kind of ingrown dissident movement. So for better or worse, a lot of these other East European countries, there was much more margin of political dissent, even within oppressive society, even with a society with great political censorship. You know, if you think about Solidarność, for example, that's one case of having a movement that is a movement that is trying to change things and to democratize, but still from within. It's not completely this effort to democratize doesn't completely come from the outside. And in Albania, none of that was possible because society was so isolated and because censorship was so high and the cost of dissent was so high was different in that sense. And I think that meant that it was when the categories changed, they changed completely overnight, but without having had any kind of learning process or any experience of maturing into having an opposition or having a democracy with conflicts of ideas or exchanges or debate. And so I think the level of the debate was perhaps different and less sophisticated, more crude than some of these other countries, which I think, and this may be more my interpretation and my speculation, but to me tells the story of how certain categories had been appropriated in this kind of blind ideological way during communism, because they were just kind of brought and enforced by the state, and then were appropriated with an equally blind ideological commitment afterwards in 1990. And so it was as though one set of beliefs went and another set of beliefs came in but without much on the ground by way of democratizing efforts and without much debate on, you know, what should be taken, how should we process this, how does this connect to our country? And so I think there was a sense of, I guess, political immaturity and democratic immaturity in terms of how, you know, the response came. Having said that, I think, you know, in Yugoslavia, they didn't have Kalashnikovs and so on, but they did have a war. So there is a sense in which some of these experiences in the Balkans were just as disruptive of the fall of socialism. I think were just as disruptive for lives as they were in Albania. In fact, you know, one of the things that was very interesting to hear in Albania over the course of the 90s was that we had gone through a communism that was really different from Yugoslav communism and was much more isolated and in some ways more restrictive. And many Albanians who had part of their nation in Yugoslavia in the form of Kosovo thought that, you know, it was much better to be in Kosovo than to be in Albania because of the degree of censorship and oppression. And yet, after in 1990, Yugoslavia went through war and the breakup of Yugoslavia came with a massive human cost. And I remember hearing these arguments in Albania about how, you know, it wanted to be Yugoslavia for all these years. But then in 1990, you suddenly didn't want to be Yugoslavia anymore because you saw what the breakup was and brought for people there. So I think there were different experiences of transition, which were, as you say, I think partly connected to shock therapy and to neoliberalism, to just kind of adapting to a new system, and partly to do with the political culture and what happened inside and how mature were democratic institutions and indeed democratic movements in these countries. I think it's difficult to have a unified theory of the trajectory and the fate of different post-communist states and the political scientists who tried to create them. I'm not sure how convinced I am by all of them, but just sort of going off of this conversation, it strikes me that the most important determining factor may not have been the policies adopted in 1990, 1991, 1992, but the basic pre-existing situation, right? So a country like Poland did have some democratic tradition before World War II, limited and failed, but nevertheless important as long-term resource to draw on. It did, as you say, have a pretty developed internal opposition movement, which could uh, create the basic outline of a post-communist government, and then ended up having problems of its own and so on. 
it was quite close to countries in, some, in Western Europe and so therefore probably had more economic opportunities. So that may help to explain its comparatively good fate. A country like Yugoslavia had a problem that other countries, with the possible exception of Czechoslovakia, did not have in quite the same way, which is this multinational state which had always had some amount of ethnic tension which had been kept down with some skill as well as a lot of oppression under the communist regime. And then for various reasons, which are themselves debated in the literature, that stopped working in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of communism. You got this horrible, bloody civil war. But that seems to have to do with the nature of the composition of Yugoslavia, obviously. And then we look at something like Albania, it seems to me that the most relevant factor here seems to be, like you're saying, just the fact that it was an even more oppressive regime that there was even less of uh, civil society and domestic opposition to hold the country together, that it does have a very long-standing distrust of the state and a very long-standing set of family ties which structure society in a way that goes beyond some other societies in the post-communist world. So I guess my question, going back to something like shock therapy, is are we identifying the right cause of some of the things you lament in Albania after the collapse of communism. It may have well been the wrong policy, but if the government had decided, let's keep up some of the factories for as long as we can, let's do X or Y or Z, would that have avoided the outcome you've seen in Albania or not? Because it seems like perhaps the outcome was overdetermined by the structural factors rather than being determined by the policy that was adopted at that time. This is a really interesting question. And as I say, I think it's one that would have been really hard to answer at the time. So this is something that I'm always mindful of because we now know a lot more about this context and we know more about the development of these countries and there are things we can tell about them after 30 years that we wouldn't have been able to tell when we were just trying to anticipate and make predictions about the future and so on. And I also think that there isn't a single cause in terms of, you know, what is it that explains these developments? I think there's always a combination of factors. One thing that I would say, though, about shock therapy, and I'm not an expert of that sort of literature, but from my experiences and from reading and from the politics of these countries, one thing that was interesting to see is how precisely because these contexts were so different, you might have expected the solutions and the recipes to be more sensitive to the context. And yet, often the literature on transition started with what have we learned from transition in Latin America, for example, and how does that apply to transition in Eastern Europe? And then Eastern Europe was one big box in which everything was fitting together without necessarily the knowledge that would have been nuanced enough and sophisticated enough that would distinguish these different countries and their different historical trajectories from each other. And so uh, I guess my criticism is that these policies were abstract and the solutions all came as one kind of abstract package and were applied these solutions in the same way to these very different contexts. So I think you're right to say that contexts change, but then also when you endorse these recipes and when you sort of think about, okay, how am I going to move forward? What am I going to change in the circumstances? Then when you get the expertise and when you get the advice, that should also be kind of targeted somehow and not so blind. And often these policies were decided with the help of international experts. And I don't want to say that they're to blame for everything, but they did contribute. And I remember, and I tell the story in the book through my father by talking about when he was a CEO at the port of Duros. And most of the decisions they were making were basically decisions that they were taking from IMF and World Bank policy papers who just were written by people sitting in Washington or whatever who knew a little bit about Eastern Europe, but just as one general category, didn't have the nuance and didn't have the detail and didn't have the kind of 
historical background that they would have needed to have in order to give targeted advice. And yet the locals were just kind of taking this advice as though it was given by these absolute authorities that couldn't be challenged and couldn't be questioned. And I think that's connected to another aspect, which is to do with just distrust of the state and state institutions. Because one thing that happened with this transition was that there was this complete collapse of faith in the state and in state authorities. Because, you know, there was this idea, there was this oppressive society and the state was oppressive. All the officials were evil and corrupt. And now we have this new state with these new institutions. But the people were still the same. And so basically, I think the, the problem was that when you have that degree of distrust in the state, then you become much more reliant on external authorities and you're much less willing to listen to, you know, your own advice. And either you become cynical and you say, OK, fine, let's just do it because this is what needs to be done. But you don't hold your own in a way. You don't have the kind of power of the argument and the force to try and stick to your argument and say, look, this is not going to work in Albania or you need to know more about this or you need to know about how this context works and so on. So there was a combination, I think, of submission on the one hand and cynicism on the other, which combined were really dangerous and pretty counterproductive. So the title of your book is Free, which I take it is partially a description of that moment of liberation, but partially has an ironic sense to it that the promised freedom did not in fact set most people free. So what, you know, as a political theorist, do you think we can learn about the nature of freedom from that experience? How should we think about what makes somebody free and how can we build a society today in which people will be more genuinely free? Okay, so the title of the book is Free Coming of Age at the End of History, and the title is partly ironic and partly aspirational. So it's partly trying to capture the ideals of freedom that were there in the 90s and the idea that uh, there was this great promise and society would change fundamentally and people would be all free on the one hand, and on the other, the irony of noticing how there is different forms of unfreedom in different systems, both of which come with their own ideological presuppositions, which both make it difficult to actually see whether freedom is being really realized for everyone. And uh, one of the things that the book does is to go through different conceptions of freedom, through different characters, to explain these commitments. And so there is a sense in which, for example, through my mother's character in the book, I try to talk about this liberal idea of freedom, the one I call negative freedom, freedom from, and uh, the idea that you are free to the extent that the state doesn't tell you what to do, where to go, what to wear, to the extent that you enjoy freedom of thought and freedom of association. And basically all the quintessentially liberal freedoms that were missing during the socialist period and then I have this other character in the book with my father who had a different one might call more social idea of positive freedom, which is that it's not enough to be free from something. You also need to be free to do something and to flourish and to realize your potential. And in that sense, the structures that came and were in place in the second part after 1990s, so through this kind of liberal capitalist institutions weren't directly oppressive in the sense that there wasn't an agent that was making people unfree, but there was a series of unintended consequences that came together and created these forms of, one might call them more structural oppression, which meant that there were a lot of people who, you know, didn't have a job or who had to leave their country or were living under constrained lives who also weren't fully free in the sense in which they had been promised they would become. 
And I guess my sort of philosophical reflection on all this is in a way the kind of take-home lesson of the book is to try and look beyond state ideologies and systemic ideologies that tell you this is what freedom looks like and this other thing, this is not really important, and to recover a sense of what I call moral freedom, which is conveyed in the book through my grandmother's character, which is to recover this sort of inner freedom, which is the freedom to choose between good and evil and to make that the foundation of social criticism. And that's a kind of freedom that my grandmother always insisted, having gone through different systems in her life and having had this life of first great privilege and wealth and then loss of everything, being deported in in camps and so on. She always insisted that there is something that no system, however oppressive, can take away from you, and that's human dignity. And when human dignity is there, you know that there is a kind of freedom, which is moral freedom, which is not reducible to any of these ideological slogans, but which is really important to know that it's there because then that becomes a foundation for how you want to realize social relations and how you can criticize society on that basis. So we have three conceptions of freedom on the table, negative, positive, and this idea of moral freedom. Let's puzzle through those together a little bit. So there's one debate within the literature on political philosophy, which is about whether we should aim for negative freedom or positive freedom. And there's a famous article by Isaiah Berlin criticizing the idea of positive freedom as being dangerous in various ways, as potentially justifying totalitarian regimes like communist ones, but having its root even in the thought of someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the way in which even there some more, what he would call positive conception of freedom, can inspire a collectivist spirit, which actually comes at the cost of individual negative freedom. So there is, I think, a deep question about whether we should prioritize negative liberty to positive liberty. But in thinking about this question in the context of something like the history of Albania or something like the history of Central Europe, I guess I wonder whether the conflict between those two is as clear or as stark as we sometimes want to suggest. So you associate negative freedom with capitalist liberal democracy or something like that, and the attempt at putting in place positive freedom of something like the communist regimes. And I certainly agree that we have a lot more negative freedom today than we would have done in the communist era. It's not at all clear to me that we have less positive freedom in the vast majority of liberal democratic states today than people did in communist regimes. It's hard to think about how you would operationalize, which is a measure, something like positive freedom, but one plausible way might be to look at something like the Human Development Index, right? Look at the extent to which people are able to access education, to which people are able to make significant choices in their lives, to which people have quality of life, to which people receive high-quality medical care, and all kinds of other things that are captured in sort of their ability to develop their faculties and aspirations. And when you look at that, it seems to me that people in contemporary Britain and contemporary Germany, contemporary America and contemporary Japan have some of the highest levels of human development that we've seen in human history. And despite all of the criticisms we can have of those countries, somebody who says, I want to select the society I want to live in on the basis of positive liberty might actually have a pretty strong incentive to say, I want to live in one of those capitalist liberal democratic regimes. Now, I agree that in Albania in 1995, you didn't have much positive liberty, but that, again, presumably has all kinds of reasons, including the long legacy of a communist regime and so on and so forth. So I guess the first question I have is, even if we grant that we should aim for maximizing positive liberty, or at least that should be a very important component of what a good society would do, 
is it actually clear that that is an argument against contemporary capitalist liberal democratic regimes? Or may not be, there be a case that actually these countries are better at providing the basic ingredients of positive liberty than the alternatives we have available? Yeah, so I think there is a kind of form of thinking that I resist when this argument comes up, which is, I think, to my mind, too beholden by the status quo, as it were. And so there's a form of thinking that says, okay, let's look at what we have and compare what we have or what we had sort of historically and think, you know, where do you want to be? Do you want to be in Albania or do you want to be in the United States or do you want to be in North Korea or do you want to be in Germany? I don't know. Of course, one can make these arguments, but I'm not the kind of person that has the expertise to make that arguments. I'm a critical theorist. So I'm someone who just looks at the society in which they live and thinks, how can I improve on the problems that I see? And what can I learn from different kinds of criticism, from different societies that I'm exposed to, from different kinds of knowledge as well? to try and make things better for everyone. So for me, it's not, you know, are the injustices in contemporary capitalist societies less concerning than the injustices of, you know, communist societies are in the past, or are these systems better or worse than each other in their historical manifestations? Because for me, that is a kind of backward looking approach that is, to me, holds you back when you're thinking about the future and when you think about how can you improve the societies that you're in. And to go back to your question about, you know, positive and negative freedom, I also don't think that it's as clear cut, actually. So I said that, you know, Albania clearly lacks negative freedom, but I don't think it had much positive freedom either, actually. Or at least, you know, it might have had that positive freedom if you think that's the kind of Isaiah Berlin type positive freedom where the state provides for certain things, but at such a high oppressive cost that this is also being delivered for some people, but not to others. Because to me, if you don't have a democratic society, if you don't have real democracy, then you also don't have positive freedom, actually. So none of these things can be delivered. They're all connected to each other. And so I would say, you know, in Albania, you didn't have negative freedom, but you also didn't have that much positive freedom either. But I would say... Also, in the capitalist societies that you live now, if you have very high inequalities in these societies, you don't have positive freedom, but you also don't have negative freedom because what positive freedoms you have affects how you exercise your freedom of thought or your freedom of association, affects the kind of epistemic skills with which you approach being a democratic agent and so on. And so if you are concerned about what I said earlier, this kind of moral freedom and how it reflects in democratic relations, it seems to me that what you should aspire to is a kind of ideal society that delivers on all of these scores and that tries to construct social relations in such a way that you can create the institutions that are able to deliver on that. And that's where the critique begins. You know, it begins with what do you have? How is democracy performing? How is it representing people? Is it offering equal representation? If it's not offering equal representation, then are these systems authorized and justified in the same way for everyone? And so once you have this radical democratic critique of the societies that you live in, then the question of what do you know from the past and what do you know about these societies in the past is a source of learning and of orientation for the future, but it's not really something that you can hold on to by saying, I'd rather be like South Korea than North Korea or something like that. Yeah, but I think that concession that you made at the end is an important one, which is to say that I didn't mean to suggest because we have both more negative and more positive liberty today in Britain or the United States than people did in Albania in 1983, we should be happy and not criticize our own society. But I think when you're trying to reflect on how to put in place the political and economic institutions and perhaps the social and cultural norms, that allow people to be free in a meaningful way. It's very important to 
observe how different historical constellations have allowed people to live. Again, you, you're not making this sort of simplistic claim that somehow there was more positive liberty in, in Albania in 1980 or something like that. But I do think it's important to think about, well, look, if the criticism of our society is that we don't do a lot to allow people to have positive liberty, it is important to think about the extent to which we have positive liberty today and to look at what kind of institutions have historically allowed people to have very low levels of positive liberty or let's say medium levels of positive liberty today because that will give us very important information about how to aspire to create a society in which people can have more of it in the future. So the point of that comparison is not to say this is clearly better than Albania in 1980 or than North Korea today, so shut up and be happy. It is to say, well, what sets of institutions can actually allow us to give people the resources to live a self-determined life in a meaningful way? And it seems to me that on that front, political theorists, of which I am one, uh, at least in training, have a tendency to think that somehow our societies don't care about positive liberty and don't give us the foundations for it. When actually I think there's absolutely ways in which our societies can improve on that front, but compared to most historical societies, we're doing pretty well at it. And unless we understand that, we're going to go pretty wrong in how to create a society that allows people to live a self-determined life in a more substantive way in that respect. Yeah, so I think I want to push back against that. So I think my worry with that argument is that it makes you complacent about the system in which you live, basically. And it also makes you see only the good sides of the institutions that you're part of. So I think a part of the success of liberal capitalist institutions has to do with democracy and with freedoms and with constitutional promises and so on. But I think a lot of it was also established against the background of very severe forms of historical injustice, which I think don't feature in this liberal narrative of progressive development of positive institutions. And I think, I don't know how you would, for example, when you assess the wealth of the United Kingdom or the wealth of France or Western Europe and so on. I think it's very hard to separate the historical legacy of these institutions and how they were constructed and the environment in which they have operated, how they've interacted with other parts of the world, how they constructed an international system that was shaped by very important power asymmetries. And then combine that with what you just said, which is a more positive aspect, the kind of more democratic rights and freedoms and, you know, constitutional promises and so on. And so I worry that if you look at liberal capitalism, let's put it like that, as an integrated system, which has both a political form and an economic form, the story that you tell about the combination of these political and economic elements isn't always a positive story, but that if you take what I see as a slightly more complacent approach to say, well, these are still better than what we have and what we had in these other parts of the world. There is a risk that by telling that story, you undermine and you're not looking at these more negative aspects, more of the darker sides of liberalism and the darker sides of capitalism. And I think if you were to say, actually, the ideal is a democratic society that really works for everyone, that really realizes freedom for everyone and takes the scope of that claim as a global one, not just the claim for France or for Germany or for, you know, core Western countries, then I think that gives you a more radical, perhaps, but also more critical and I think more productive approach to how you think about these societies as a political theorist, at least. And then, you know, when you're doing policy, it's a different question. 
Well, I don't know how different the question of policy is. I think we can all say we would like a world in which everybody has negative and positive liberty and moral liberty and all of those things. But there is a real question of what steps can we take to bring that world into existence? And unless we have some kind of working theory on that, it's not going to be very useful. So I guess the question is, if you take that approach, which I find plausible in itself, what does that in fact tell us about how to create that world? How can we build a world in which people will have negative liberty and positive liberty and perhaps as moral liberty that you've talked about, but I still love to understand more about. Yeah, so I think that comes from democratizing structures at every level, both at the economic level, but also at the political level and also at the international level. So I think the answer is, first of all, to think about the world as a unit of concern and not just particular states. And so when you're thinking about the development of particular countries, you don't just focus on the claims of those particular countries, but you also see how that country relates to other countries in the world and to the development of other countries and what it has done to either contribute to that development or hinder it. And just to pause you there for a minute, as I understand your position, it's cosmopolitan in the sense that we should care about the well-being of everybody in the world. We shouldn't just limit our moral concern to those who are part of the same state. But you do recognize the need for states, right? This is not the position where we should abolish states. So perhaps just tell us a little bit about that so we can follow that argument. So, I mean, in my view, states are really important units of decision-making, but they're important units of decision-making from an instrumental perspective in terms of what they enable, what they give you. When they work, they give you the coercive apparatus, which enables you to make laws. And in ideal cases, it gives you a coercive apparatus that has also some degree of accountability and transparency and can be justified democratically. And so that enables you to make democratic laws. And it also has a kind of education system and a social ethos, let's say, that enables you to realize these laws in a certain way. So for me, the state is really important because it's a tool for realizing these democratic global justice concerns that I have. But I don't think of states as being themselves inherently ethically justified units. I think a state is an entity that, you know, is there at a particular point in history, but no longer there at another point in history, you know, wasn't always there, will not always be there, just like capitalism. These are contingent creations and they enable you to solve particular problems at specific points in time, but they don't always solve the problems. And when there is a crisis, you need to think about how you can change things so that you can move forward. So the scope of the claim is cosmopolitan, and it's the idea that, you know, for freedom to be delivered to everyone, it needs to be considered as applicable to a unit that is the world, not just, you know, if you care about moral freedom, that can't be restricted then the claim of how do you realize moral freedom to just the freedom of your own fellow citizens. It needs to be about everyone in the world. And once you widen the scope, I think that leads you to thinking about how you can democratize, as I say, in such a way as to bring this unit and this interaction between different units at all levels in the right way. And that's, of course, a very complex work of both politics and policy, but at the level of ideas and at the level of vision of the world, I think it starts with this requirement to open up spaces for democratic scrutiny wherever you see that there is an asymmetry in the use of power. And that can be economic power when you think about, you know, employment relations or labor or how capitalist markets work or how international financial institutions work and what kind of power asymmetries they entrench. It can be at a political level when you think about democracy and kind of opening up having political rights and um, associative rights and protest movements and so on and so forth. And it can also be at the international level when you think about how can you make international institutions more representative and more accountable. And that can be from 
the European Union, that's one example of a pretty unaccountable international institution to other things like the United Nations and so on. So it's a very large, ambitious, large-scale project, which I don't think any particular theory can solve. But what the theory can do is to give you a direction for change and to give you a kind of critical ground in which you start with a certain ideal of freedom and then you think, okay, how can I deliver this ideal of freedom for everyone in the world in the best way I can? And what kind of forms of social criticism do I need to move forward with that? This may seem like a very simple question. Help me understand the connection between democratization and freedom, which is to say that while you were talking, I remembered this lovely little essay by a political philosopher who's a democratic socialist, Michael Walzer, who wrote back in the 60s an essay called A Day in the Life of a Socialist Citizen. And he imagines what it would look like to live in a society that has genuine, what at the time would be called basis democracy. So rather than, as Marx would put it, you know, going fishing in the morning and hunting in the afternoon, being critical critics in the evening, this would be somebody who, you know, sits on the fishing committee in the morning and who deliberates about what can be hunted in the afternoon and is sitting on a committee to give out a literary prize in the evening. And very quickly, you get to a world which might be enjoyable to political theorists like you and me, and it might be enjoyable to people who really care about politics, like those who listen to this podcast, but which to many citizens actually sounds terrible, right? Because they want to get on with living their lives and hopefully having the material basis for doing so and the time to do so, to spend time with their friends and family and going on excursions and all the wonderful things you can do when you have money and leisure, but not actually being engaged in politics all of the time. And so... You know, what's the theory by which the democratization of all of these institutions, the opening up everything to questioning participation, actually delivers freedom in a meaningful way? So, first of all, about the parody of communism, you know, the fishing in the morning and so on and hunting and criticizing in the evening. I think that's a sort of summary of a utopia that nobody really knows what it's going to look like, because that's a summary of a society in which the state has withered away. And so it's not clear whether the theorists, you know, Marx and Engels, when they came up with this, whether they were joking or whether it was ironic or, and it's so short, you know, people take that as representation of what communism might look like. But I think in fact, it's just, you know, communism is a society in which the state has withered away. And that's to say where the law doesn't really play a coercive function anymore. And it's such a far-fetched imaginary scenario from where we are now and so far away. I don't think that's the sort of main thing that we should be worrying about. One of the reasons why people engage with that little possibly ironic passage so much is that, it's, as I understand, the only description of what that society might look like in Marx's work. But I was less interested in Marx in this question or in this context than in Walzer's use of that to think through what genuine participatory democracy, let's call it, would look like. And the recognition that for most people, the idea of being engaged in politics all of the time is not a utopia, it's a dystopia. The really important part of your question, I think, is what is the connection between democracy and freedom? And for me, the connection is the following. When you're in a democracy, you know, it's this idea of being forced to be free. So you're basically giving up a set of individual liberties because you believe that this collective authority is going to give you back what you have given up, as it were. You've sort of sacrificed something, but you will get in the form of collective goods or in the form of having a kind of authority that makes decisions collectively and so on. You get represented, basically. So you give up freedom, but then you're also in some ways made even more free because you're giving up this kind of freedom of the state of nature where you can't sleep safely because you don't know what people in a lawless society will do to you. And you're giving up this freedom 
to get a form of authority that is authorized by you and therefore kind of makes you free. Now, the problem is if you live in a society where there are asymmetries of power, you give up this freedom to these authorities, but you're not actually getting it back. Some people are getting it back, but some people are not getting it back because you're having these kind of fundamental asymmetries. And so the question there, I think, is not what do you do to make people equal authors of the law in that sense. I think the question is, where are there spaces of lack of democracy and lack of freedom? And how can you reduce those spaces? So it's not about you have an ideal of, you know, what full democracy would look like. And you try to realize those ideals and you kind of democratize as many committees as you can and so on. It's you diagnose the problem and then you look at the alternatives that you have. You look at the theories available. You look at the solutions that you have. And then you work in this kind of more imminent way by thinking about problem solving and thinking about, okay, I've got these markets now, capitalist markets. Are they working? Are they representing people? Is there democracy at that level? Is there democracy on the workplace? And you begin by making these changes. And then democracy is a kind of process. Nobody can say, and in fact, I think it would be undemocratic if you were to say to people, this is what you need to do. I think you need to begin by identifying a problem, trying to think about what could solve the problem that you're identifying, including this scope question that I've been talking about, you know, states and units, local units, transnational units, international units, and the kind of relationship between those and how they represent. You think about what kind of agents can enable that. So you think about, you know, what institutions do I have, political parties, protest movements, social movements, trade union, whatever, committees, bureaucracies, administration, apparatuses, and so on. And with the tools that you have available, you try to, as I say, both diagnose and then solve the problems in a way that is better than alternatives that are available. And so it's a kind of more bottom-up process rather than a top-down process where you say, okay, this is what democracy requires and this is what we need to do in the world. As a final question, I want to understand what it would mean to be in a society in which people have more moral liberty. But also, since this is something which, as I understand it, is available to all of us, even under challenged circumstances and even perhaps under generally tragic circumstances, what does it mean for individuals to exercise moral liberty under non-ideal circumstances? So I think in non-ideal circumstances, it means basically to retain dignity in this way in which I have explained, where, you know, you're asked to make compromises and you always think there's a moral agent who is making these compromises. And so to think about the fact that there is a moral space in which nobody can interfere. And when you're asked to do things, when you're asked to obey unjust rules or whatever, you resort to that inner moral authority in refusing to either, you know, oppress or to cooperate or to be complicit, or there's always a kind of margin of moral agency with which you exercise that will, in a way, to prevail over circumstances. And that's how it works, I think, in oppressive environments. And as I say in the book, my grandmother is kind of a good example. She gives you all these examples of how, you know, there were points in her life where she has to make these decisions and to make these moral choices. And that question is connected to the question of, you know, we have this kind of moral freedom and that moral freedom is the ground for social critique. But what we don't have is a political world that reflects moral relationships between human beings. And, you know, I'm interested in Kant and this Kantian idea of what Kant calls the kingdom of ends, the idea that you live in a world in which people aren't just being instruments for each other. They're not just being tools, they're not just being used as tools, but they're actually 
the moral agency of everyone is the condition for the development of the moral agency of everyone else. So it's a kind of a moral world of integrated moral ends. And I think that kind of Kantian ideal of the kingdom of ends gives you an ideal of a political society that if it were to realize that ideal of moral relations would also realize freedom in its full form. And so not just in this kind of inner moral freedom form, but also freedom as externalized in the relationships of people in this more reciprocal way. Leerti, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.